Would you remain standing and let's read our scripture this morning? And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is God's word. You may be seated. Oh, we welcome you this morning. So glad that you've come. This morning, I'd like to uh, have us just think together uh, about the subject of health. Uh, particularly, no, I'm not going to make you jog or do exercises this morning, no calisthenics. I want to talk about church health. And I'd like to suggest to you that the church at Antioch, about which we just read, presents us with a model of a healthy church. And by healthy, I don't mean perfect. Because there aren't any perfect Christians and there aren't any perfect churches. Uh, If you ever find a perfect church, please don't attend there because you'll screw it up for everybody else. You know, every church is made up of sinners who have been saved by grace alone, through personal faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And, And all of us are at differing levels of personal spiritual growth. We're all at different places on our journey. Some are very mature, some are uh, fresh uh, from the spiritual womb, as it were, uh, and, and, and most of us are somewhere in between. But we can observe specific attitudes and commitments and actions in this church at Antioch that it seems to me paint a picture of health. It was a healthy church. You know, in... Uh, in our tribe, evangelicalism at, at present, uh, there's no lack of discussion on the topic of church health. In fact, if you Google the phrase church health, you will be richly and abundantly rewarded with literally hundreds of articles, maybe thousands of articles on the topic of church health. And I wonder this morning, are we a healthy church here at LifePoint? How might we stack up against the church at Antioch? Uh, the four verses we just read together suggest seven characteristics of the church in Antioch. And so you're already thinking four verses, seven points, typical preacher, right? Those four verses we read suggest, I think, seven characteristics of the church in Antioch that, that we might use as, as kind of a diagnostic tool to measure the health of our church and our maybe our individual health as we serve and we contribute alongside each other. So I want to move very quickly through these seven characteristics. I hope that you'll take notes this morning. A healthy church, first of all, is given to generosity. It's given to generosity. You might recall that in chapter 11, we read that some of those who were scattered by the persecution that Saul had unleashed on the church traveled north until they arrived in Antioch, in Syria. Today, that same city is in Turkey. And some of those believers that traveled there proclaimed the gospel to Jews. Uh, Others proclaimed the gospel to non-Jews or Gentiles. And Luke says there that the hand of the Lord was with them. Many believed and turned to the Lord. Barnabas heard about what God was doing there in Antioch went and found Saul, brought him back uh, to Antioch, and together for a period of, of one year, they did nothing other than just teach those new disciples in Antioch. In verse 27 of chapter 11, we read this um, a couple of weeks ago. Now in those days, these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up, and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. 
And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Well, what do we see here? We see giving that is at one at one and the same time spontaneous, voluntary, exceedingly generous, for the relief of brothers and sisters in Christ, whom they did not know, with whom they had no prior relationship, who lived in a different country, almost 400 miles away. Antioch was a predominantly Gentile church. The church in Judea would have been predominantly Jewish. So their attitude toward their money and their possessions reflected the attitude of the believers in Jerusalem that we read about in chapter 4, where Luke says of them that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they shared everything they had. So Barnabas and Saul were the couriers of the gift that Antioch sent to Jerusalem. In 1225 then, Luke says, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So Barnabas and Saul have traveled back from Jerusalem to Antioch. Remember that we learned last week that this Mark, uh, John Mark, was Barnabas' cousin. Luke introduces him into the narrative here very casually, kind of seems to be part of Luke's writing style. He had done the same with Barnabas in chapter 4, just happened to mention him and came back to him later. And we'll get to know John Mark in the weeks and months ahead as we continue to study through this book of the Acts of the Apostles. One of our core values here at LifePoint is generosity. You have been and are a generous church. And you regularly demonstrate your generosity and your giving to God through our church, to our church. You you financially support global workers in Togo and Japan and the United Kingdom. Your your generosity has allowed us to provide financial assistance to many within our church from our benevolence fund. Your responsiveness to special needs in our community has been exemplary. Uh, Kathy Pruitt informed me this morning that we have been able to scholarship a number of kids for kids camp that, that might not otherwise have been able to attend because you've been generous. And I affirm you in that. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth on another occasion when there was a financial need. But as you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So notice that he he defines generosity there as an act of grace, uh, motivated by, expressive of, a profound personal awareness of the grace that God has generously extended to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus once said to his disciples, freely you have received, therefore freely give. So a healthy church is characterized by generosity. And secondly, a healthy church is shaped by biblical teaching. In Acts 13, verse 1, we read, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Listed here, are certain prophets and teachers in the church, men who had the spiritual gift of prophecy and others who had the spiritual gift of teaching. And it's not very apparent from the English text, but in the Greek text, it's clear that the first three men were prophets, Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius. The last two were teachers, Manian and Saul. Um, and, And these, it would seem, were the primary influencers in the church at Antioch, for over 400 years, there were no prophets in Israel, no, no prophetic voice speaking into the life of the church, or into the nation, rather. Finally, John the Baptist came on the scene as the last of the Old Testament prophets, and then after him, of course, Jesus. But it was during those 400 years when there was no prophetic voice in Israel that those legalistic sects like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
arose in Israel. They, they taught the people, but there were no prophets speaking by the Spirit, none who, who breathed the wind of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, into the congregation of Israel until John. And then after him, Jesus. John and Jesus rocked the world of the Jewish leaders because they boldly and prophetically called out the sins of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and the priests, called them to repentance, got John beheaded, Jesus crucified. The, the balance of teaching and prophecy is always has always been needed amongst God's people. And and it's needed in the church today. The gift of prophecy, as we've already seen in our journey through Acts, includes foretelling or predictive prophecy. But the larger ministry of prophecy is what we would call forthtelling, a proclamational prophecy, proclaiming what God has already said, what what he's already revealed by the Spirit in the written word. When the Spirit was poured out on the church at Pentecost, you remember the the spiritual gift of prophecy was renewed for the church age. Antioch was a balanced church. Both prophets and teachers exercised their gifts in the ministry of spiritual formation, giving shape to the lives of disciples individually, to the life of the church corporately. A healthy church is shaped by biblical teaching. In Acts 2, we, we read of the first Christian church of Jerusalem that they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know, something that I hear regularly from people who visit our church is that many churches that they have visited or attended regularly are drifting away, sometimes not drifting away, sometimes intentionally moving away from their confidence in the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. Our purpose at LifePoint Church is to elevate God's Word and to teach it as clearly and really unapologetically as we are able with complete confidence in its authority, whether to children or to youth or adults. We're teaching God's Word. And I believe that the minute we move away from that confidence, the minute we move away from that intention, we become an unhealthy church. Third, a healthy church is led by a multiplicity of leaders. Uh, again, verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. We, we know that there were prophets and teachers in Antioch. Were there other leaders? For example, elders or deacons. We're not told. Uh, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that the New Testament model, as we look at the, the, the sweep of the New Testament, the New Testament model for local church leadership, leadership involves multiple leaders who are leading and serving in cooperation with one another. In fact, the idea of a solo pastor, which we see a lot in America today, is actually somewhat foreign to the New Testament church. In the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he wrote that God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip God's people for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ might be built up and the entire church might move towards spiritual maturity. The specific spiritual gifts he mentions there are not even close to an exhaustive list of all the gifts of spiritual enablements that God has given to the church. But they are the gifts we most often associate with leadership in the church. And their purpose is not to do the work of ministry. Their purpose is to equip God's people together, cooperatively, collectively, to do the work of ministry. So here at LifePoint, pastors and elders serve cooperatively to teach and to shepherd the flock. I can tell you uh, that each of us has a very different personality. Um, each of us has different giftings, but we submit ourselves first to the Lord and then to each other. Um, as the lead pastor, you might say I'm kind of the first among equals, but I too submit myself to the other elders. In fact, we're currently engaged in a study of biblical eldership because we want to continue to to just to learn, to grow in our understanding of our role as elders and to become more effective in leading this church. 
So a multiplicity of leaders. And then fourth, a healthy church reflects the diversity of the community. And I'll call you back again to verse 1. By diversity, what I mean, you know, when you hear the word diversity today, all kinds of things come to mind, right? But by diversity in this moment, I mean the racial and ethnic diversity of the community. A healthy church will reflect the racial and ethnic diversity of its community. And in giving us this list of three prophets and two teachers, Luke has also given us a glimpse of a racially and culturally diverse core of leaders. Uh, For example, we learned in chapter 4 that Barnabas was a Levite, that that is, he was a descendant of the priestly tribe in Israel. He was also a native of the island of Cyprus, that that great big island out there in the middle of the Mediterranean. So as a result, we would probably conclude that Barnabas was what the New Testament calls a Hellenistic Jew. That is, he was a a, a Greekish kind of Jew, not geekish, but Greekish kind of Jew, because the culture of Cyprus in the first century was decidedly Greek. Simeon had the nickname Niger, which means black. Though it's likely to assume that he was a black man of African descent. Lucius was from Cyrene, which is today in the North African country of Libya, right there on the Mediterranean. So Lucius also was African. Manian, his name is actually pronounced Manian, and that's just hard for me to say, so I'm just calling him Manian. He's not here to protest. But Manian, Luke tells us, was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And again, which Herod are we talking about? This, is, this isn't Herod Agrippa, whom we met in chapter 12, whose death, awful death, right, is recorded there. This is Herod Antipas, Agrippa's uncle, the one who ordered the execution of John the Baptist and before whom Jesus was examined before being sentenced to crucifixion by Pontius Pilate. The English Standard Version translates um, the word suntrophos, suntrophos as lifelong friend, and that, that's helpful, but the word literally means, it literally indicates that he was brought up with Herod. He was raised with him. So he may have been more than just a friend, more than a lifelong friend. He may have been what we today might call a foster brother, a stepbrother. In any case, he he would have been very familiar with the Herodian family, including Herod Agrippa. His upbringing meant that he was distinctly Roman in his cultural orientation. Saul, whose name will change without notice or explanation to Paul in the next chapter, was from the city of Tarsus in Cilicia, which again is part of Turkey today. Um, but he was a Roman citizen who was raised in a um, an outstanding premier Roman city. Self-identified not as a Roman, but as a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee. So he was a, a Roman Jew. So we see in this list of prophets and teachers significant racial diversity. We see significant cultural diversity. And it's exactly the kind of diversity we should expect within a cosmopolitan city like Antioch. The church in Antioch reflected reflected the the racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity of its surrounding community. And so it should be for us today. There's a lot of talk these days about racial and ethnic diversity in the church. It's it's, it's become a very sensitive, hot topic. We have to kind of be careful about how we talk about racial diversity these days. But here's what what I would say about it. I, I don't personally believe 
that, that local church leaders should give in to pressure to somehow artificially manipulate and, and manufacture diversity in our congregations. Jesus is building his church. He promised that he would. I will build my church, he said. But on the other hand, I believe that a, a healthy local church that's reaching out into its community ought to reflect the racial and cultural diversity of the surrounding community. When you examine the demographics of Olympia and Thurston County, you'll find that this area is predominantly white. Almost, almost exclusively. But there are people in our neighborhoods who are of African descent. There are Native Americans, First Nations people. There are Hispanics, there are Asians, there are Pacific Islanders, there are East Indians, and a smattering of other people groups. So, so what is it that I'm saying? Just this, that, that while there are churches in our community, there are churches in our communities that are mostly black. There are churches in our communities that are mostly Asian. There are churches in our communities that are mostly Hispanic we would nevertheless expect that most churches uh, in Thurston County will be mostly white, based simply on demographics. But in healthy churches, there ought increasingly to be a growing racial and cultural diversity as Christians live out their faith and reach across racial and cultural divides to experience and to celebrate the the man what the New Testament calls the manifold grace of God. And I love that word because um, it, it it means multicolored. The manifold grace of God. It means multicolored. In fact, if you're a gardener and you understand what a variegated leaf is, that, that the word means variegated. It means multi-hued, multicolored. In fact, there's a, a New Testament paraphrase that refers to the, the polka dot grace of God because it's it's wonderfully colorful. And I'm thrilled to see that this is happening here at LifePoint. I hope it continues. It's not something we're manufacturing. It's not something we're manipulating. But I hope that we'll be able to welcome more and more people into our church whose heart language may not be English, whose cultural orientation is different than the majority, who have a a different hue of skin, and and that we can learn from each other, that we can glorify God together and, and minister better to Olympia, Lacey, Tumwater, and beyond because we are better together. Fifth, the healthy church has matured through spiritual disciplines. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 13 of Acts, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Well, what is a spiritual discipline? Sounds kind of terrifying right at the outset, doesn't it? Spiritual discipline. Well, here's a simple definition. A spiritual discipline is a practice prescribed in the Scriptures that promotes spiritual growth in the life of a disciple. Let me repeat that. A spiritual discipline is a practice prescribed in the Scriptures that promotes spiritual growth in the life of a disciple. Let me break that down for us a little. Let's begin with that word discipline. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, the Apostle Paul said to to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So a spiritual discipline should be understood as a means to spiritual growth. Spiritual disciplines aren't ends in themselves. You are not a godly person simply because you practice a spiritual discipline. On the contrary, it's the practice of the spiritual disciplines that will cultivate godliness in you. You're not an Olympic athlete because you occasionally jog, even though in your mind you might imagine yourself that way. But if you commit yourself to a a disciplined regimen of physical exercise... Training, you'll make progress, won't you? 
But it's going to take discipline. Years of discipline to become an Olympic athlete. And next, our, our simple definition says that a spiritual discipline is a practice. So it's not simply an attitude or something you appreciate or something you that that's uh, an ideal for you. It's a practice. It's something that you do. There are some spiritual disciplines that we practice alone. There are others that we practice with other Christians. The doing of them is not mysterious in itself. What is mysterious is how the Spirit of God uses those simple practices to grow us up spiritually and to create Christ-likeness in us. Third, our, our definition says that a spiritual discipline is a practice prescribed in the Scriptures. So when we think about spiritual disciplines, we're, we're talking about things that, that are practices that are taught or they're modeled in the Scriptures. And, and there are a couple of reasons I can think of right now why that is especially important to clarify. The, the first is that if we don't insist on disciplines that are prescribed in the Bible, then we might just leave ourselves open to calling anything we want a spiritual discipline. Gardening, for example, or hiking, or jogging, or or even practices like yoga that have their origin not in Christianity, but in Eastern religions. A second reason is that biblical spiritual disciplines are really derived from the gospel. In other words, they, they emanate from the gospel. For that reason, the, they, the practice of spiritual disciplines will never divorce us from the gospel. Instead, they will direct us to the gospel. And as we practice biblical spiritual disciplines, we will be taken deeper into the mystery and the power and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ for our lives, rather than moving away from it as if we've ascended to some advanced level of spirituality where the gospel is no longer at the center. So you might be saying, okay, you've totally confused me. Give me an example. Well, there are three spiritual disciplines mentioned in our scripture text today. They are worship and prayer and fasting. And notice again that these act, these are activities that they were doing. The Bible prescribes other spiritual disciplines as well. On that list would be things like Bible study, uh, meditation on the scriptures, fellowship, uh, submission, confession, worship, solitude, simplicity, celebration, generosity, and more. But notice in verses 2 to 3 that the word fasting appears twice. First in relation to worshiping, and second in relation to prayer. Fasting means to voluntarily reduce or or eliminate your intake of food for a specific time and purpose so that you can focus your attention on God and, and so that you can better hear His voice. It's it's moving, removing one of the distractions that keep us from hearing the voice of God. Following on that, then, in verse 2, we would say that a healthy church is responsive to the Holy Spirit as he speaks. Today, when we see the word worshiping, our first mental image might have them participating in what we would think of as a worship service, right? I mean, so we might imagine them singing. We might imagine them together in a room somewhere, lifting their hands to the Lord. We might uh, picture them praying. And, and that clearly was a part of the early church experience, but that's not exact, actually what it, it, it means in this case. The word worshiping here actually translates a word that means serving or ministering. It's not clear who Luke was describing by the word they. He might have meant the five prophets and teachers, or he may have meant the entire church. What it tells us, though, is that there is so much more to worship than what we usually think or expect. They were ministering to the Lord by exercising their spiritual enablements, their spiritual gifts, as they served in the ministry of the church. So understand this morning that that serving is, is as much an expression of 
worship as is participating in a weekly worship gathering. When we worship and we sing, when we do what we do on Sunday mornings here in this room, we're ministering to the Lord, yes. We are praising Him. We are worshiping Him. We are exalting Him. You're expressing our love for Him, our gratitude to Him. But that's not the whole picture. There is so much more to worship. These people were fasting so that they might hear the Spirit speak. And so it was that that while they were serving the Lord, as they were fasting, that God spoke. Sometimes you may wonder why God doesn't speak to you more often. You you hear people say, oh, God spoke to me. And you go, he hasn't talked to me in a long time. Or maybe ever. Now let me suggest that it may be because you're not taking the time or making it a priority to listen. Maybe there's just too much noise in your life. Real noise and metaphorical noise, symbolic noise. There's so many other things going on that prevent you from hearing from the Lord. Maybe it's because you haven't yet done what he told you to do the last time he spoke. Is that possible? Maybe when, when you get going on whatever that was, when you, you actually become responsive to whatever that was, he'll speak into your life again and tell you what he wants you to do next. You heard about a pastor in South America who one Sunday morning stood up to give his sermon and, and uh, he just walked up to the pulpit and he said, love one another. And then he went and sat down. The whole church was like, That was the shortest worship service I've ever been a part of. I like sermons like that. Nice and short. Three words, love one another. Next Sunday came, he stood up to give his sermon. He said, love one another. (laughs) And then he sat down. Third week, love one another. Fourth week, love one another. Fifth week, love one another. And so it went. And finally, you know, people were getting kind of agitated. I came for more than that. Can't you really teach us God's word? And he said, until you start loving each other, then I'll start speaking another message. See, Luke doesn't tell us how God spoke. And sometimes we think, well, God just speaks to some people audibly. There's, there's no indication here that he spoke audibly to them. That there, there's, there's no language here that says that it was an audible voice. It may have been, you know, through a prophetic utterance, through one of the prophets. Maybe he brought a prophecy from the Lord, or it may well have been by means of a, just a deep conviction that came across, came upon everyone in the church. What, what's clear though, is that the Holy Spirit spoke to people who were engaged in doing what they already knew to do while they were in the middle of doing it, and then they understood it together as the clear voice of the Holy Spirit. There was no question that it was the voice of God speaking into the church. So a healthy church is a church that's actively listening together for the voice of God. Have you noticed... God doesn't usually speak in suggestions. Have you, have you noticed that as you read the scriptures? He doesn't say, hey, hey, here's a word of kind of general advice. Here's what you might do. God doesn't speak like that. He speaks directly to us, oftentimes in commands. And obedience is expected. Seventh and finally, a healthy church is sacrificial in its sending. A healthy church is sacrificial in its, in its sending. Verses 2 and 3, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You know, every week when I'm studying the scriptures, I learn something that I've never seen before. And this week I was surprised to learn that what I've always thought those two words set apart meant was not, in fact, what they mean. See, I thought that those two words probably translated a word like sanctify or consecrate. And to be sanctified is to be made holy, to be set apart unto God for his purposes. But in that case, it's God who does the sanctifying. We can't sanctify anyone. But here Luke employs an entirely different word. And that word means to separate, to to redirect, to 
to reappoint to a specific purpose. And in practical terms, God said to the church in Antioch, I want you to remove Saul and Barnabas from your church staff because I have something new and different for them to do. It's never easy, is it, when God calls away a leader whom everyone loves and admires. And there's no indication that Saul or Barnabas volunteered to be sent out. They they didn't just say, man, we'd really like to go. Can we go? This was God who did this. The Spirit sent them out by instructing the church to do so. And the church sent them out, having been instructed by the Spirit to do so. They, They were sent by the Spirit of God through the church. And because I know that Saul and Barnabas loved the people of that church, there were probably tears all around. And Barnabas and Saul had, had, had been there for a solid year. They had been not just academically teaching, but they had been investing themselves in the lives of those people. They had come to know them. They had come to love them. And, and in leaving, they would leave a piece of their heart behind. It was the Spirit of God that moved them. And what did they do next? They fasted and prayed some more. And then Luke says that they laid their hands on them, which is a a symbol of affection, of identification, of partnership. They probably prayed one last time and they sent them off. And that phrase, sent them off, means that they released them. They let them go. And we might say that after laying hands on them, they took their hands off of them. After laying their hands on them, they they just took their hands off and released them, let them go for God's purposes. Because they did, the world has never been the same. Imagine if, if they hadn't gone, Barnabas and Saul. You know, I sometimes think about the many people whom we've had the opportunity to influence here over the years, uh, who have influenced us, whom, whom God has then called and whom we've sent away from Life Point Church, releasing them to, to God's greater purposes for their lives and their ministries. I think of Ian Smith, who was a part of our church, who's now ministering with his new wife in Japan. Matt and Emily Sidley, who are pastoring a church up at SeaTac. <clears throat> but I also think of the many who were influential lay leaders whose ministries strengthened us as a church. A lot of them were members of the military, uh, whom God then redirected to different parts of the state or the country or the or the world. And if I were be, to begin to list them, the list would be long. And we miss them. We miss them. But we know that God is continuing to use them to influence lives and to make a difference for his kingdom in all the places he has called them. So here's the point. A healthy church is not only a sending church, it's sacrificial in its sending. Can you imagine the congregational meeting when they announced God had told them to send away Saul, their most effective evangelist? And Barnabas, you know, the the most encouraging, the most inspirational guy in the church. You might know that his name wasn't really Barnabas, it was Joseph, but Barnabas means son of encouragement. It was a nickname because he was just such an encouraging guy. So, so they're sending away their very best. And from an organizational standpoint, from a church family standpoint, it didn't make sense. The church was sending away their very best because the Spirit had directed them to do so. And still today, it's our responsibility as a local church in responsiveness to the Holy Spirit to discover whom God is gifting, how he's gifting them, to discover how and where he may be appointing them, and to intentionally let go of our purposes for them in in favor of God's higher calling. Whether that higher calling is within our church and or within our community or or in another ministry in another place, one of the things that we hope to do as a church is to plant other churches. We haven't gotten there yet, but but a day will come when when that will happen, and 
And on that occasion, we will not only send away a leader, we'll, we'll send away a group of people to go with him to plant that church. That'll be painful. But a healthy church is sacrificial in its sending. So it's our responsibility as church leaders to assist you to find that place of service to which God is calling you. And we're going to take uh, uh, next Sunday to talk more about that. I hope you'll be here for that message. Well, this morning, uh, it, it gives me great pleasure. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to welcome Abiodun Faliki to our Board of Elders here at Life Point Church. And, and this morning, we are going to consecrate him to his ministry as our newest elder. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, Paul wrote, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that is, elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. As we evaluate candidates for the role of elder at church, this is the grid through which they are evaluated. And uh, you may have noticed that there is actually there are only act two um, abilities that are listed there. Everything else has to do with personal character, about the, who the person is. The elders have examined Abudin on the basis of these qualifications. We've interviewed him extensively for uh, the role of elder here at LifePoint, and additionally, we've consulted with others uh, who have known and served with him in the past and other places who have also affirmed his qualifications and his giftedness to serve the Lord in this way. And uh, I've asked Abudin to come and briefly share with you his testimony of personal faith in Christ and his desire to serve as an elder at LifePoint. So Abudin, will you please come at this time? There you go. Yes, uh, good, uh, good morning. My name is Abudin Faliki. I'm born and raised in Africa. I um, um, am a Christian. I um, I think in, uh, this is my testimony. In 1981, um, I, I was an exchange student from Africa. So I came in uh, with a scholarship from Nigeria. I'm from Nigeria, born and raised in Nigeria. So I was in Pomona, uh, Sheffield College, and uh, Mont San Antonio College. And uh, it was like freedom from my parents, freedom from anyone that knew me. So I was, you know, partying heavily and, uh, you know, all, 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 all those things. Uh, as a, you know, as a young person, I was 19, but God was faithful. Uh, um, so um, for the first time, there was a, a, a um, boys market uh, where I was living in the apartment. I wanted to go and get toiletries. And something just told me there was a church right for the first time, I went to go to church today. It was Easter, uh, April, and that was the beginning of uh, being born again, uh, giving my life to Christ, saving me. So I was born again, 19, and, uh, you know, and that's how my journey for Christ started. Uh, but I had a problem with my visa, my student scholarship visa. I had to go back to Africa. I got stuck in Africa uh, for some time, but, you know, I, I was still a baby Christian. I, I desperately wanted to come back to the U.S., so I got a, a different passport, different name, fake name, came back to the U.S., uh, 1984. I was doing that uh, as an illegal alien for, you know, with a visiting visa for some years before the Lord convicted me. So uh, 1986, you know, the Lord just 
you know, really convicted me to make things right. So I went back to Africa uh, to make things right uh, because of my status. Um, so God was so faithful uh, there. I became disillusioned. I thought God didn't love me. I had depression, low self-esteem, all kinds of things because of uh, the challenges that I faced. Because here was I, no college degree, nothing, starting all over again. But God was so merciful. God was so faithful. In spite of all that, uh, I think, uh, uh, well, you know, I s- finished my college back in Africa, uh, my four-year college, uh, 1997, got married to a beautiful, beautiful lady, uh, my wife, Kenny. We got married in 1997. Uh, we have our first daughter, 1998. And by God's divine design, year 2000, uh, there was a program called uh, Immigrant Visa, a Green Card Lottery, American government sends this all over the world for people to apply to come to United States legally. Uh, that was when I got the green card visa. I got, you know, from the, from, uh, you know, Africa, from Nigeria. Uh, so I came in legally with my wife and we had two kids then. The oldest was two years old. The youngest was nine months old, I think, or eight, six months old. So we came in 2001 and, uh, well, uh, 2002, we started worshiping at Westwood, and that's why I met Pastor Jean. Uh, he was uh, the growing families class group leader. So we were in the growing families class because we are little, little kids. So that's when we met uh, Pastor Jim Hayes. He was the group leader. We grew up, you know, in that for a while. Uh, after some years, 20, 2006, we became U.S. citizens, so my wife went back to Africa for 10 years. And, uh, you know, so how that's how the journey has been. God has been faithful. Uh, we came back to the U.S. with our kids and family 2016 to settle back again after, you know, being in, back in Africa for about 10 years. So, But in spite of that, the Lord has been faithful. We came in. We were looking for a, a place to serve and worship. So we ended up in uh, Life Point. That's how we came here. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, my wife and I couldn't just sit, you know, we felt we just couldn't sit. So we opened our home for home group, you know, life, life point home group. We have a home group in our home and my wife too. She's, uh, you know, uh, they've started a, uh, a woman's, uh, Bible study with a lady called Gail. Uh, I think they meet at the portable. So that's our journey. That's our life journey. Great. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to invite uh, Kenny Abudin's wife to come now and uh, and the elders, the other elders and the church staff will you please join us on the platform We are going to uh, lay hands on Abiodun and Kenny and uh, pray for them. Greg, will you lead us? Heavenly Father, Lord, we are are so grateful, Lord, that um, first of all, for, for the salvation you give us through Jesus Christ, Lord. And we're thankful for uh, Abedin and Kenny, Lord, and, and this calling that you've placed upon Abedin's heart, Lord, to serve our congregation and to um, help guide us, Lord, as a church. Father God, I pray that you draw us deeply together as elders and pastors, Lord. Give us a heart for our congregation, Lord. Please lead us through your Holy Spirit, Father God. Help us to do the great things that you have for us to do as a church and to guide us, Father. Just pray this in your son's wonderful name. Dear God, I thank you for Abedin and Kenny, that uh, they are faithful servants of yours and that you've given them a heart to serve the church and to serve you. I pray that you give Abedin wisdom and discernment 
in humility as he serves this church. And I pray that you give him a deep love for the people of LifePoint and a deep love for the people of this community, this city. Use him, God. Keep him always looking at you, looking to you to guide his steps. Father, we are in awe of your righteous providence and the way that you've brought uh, Abiyadan and Kenny here. We thank you for that. Um, I would echo my brothers and just say that bless them richly uh, in, the, in the calling that you've put on their hearts. Thank you, Father. Lord, I lift my sister Kenny to you. and Lord, I thank you first for her love for God and secondly for her love for her husband, for her family. Just pray as they take on this endeavor as a as a team that you will bless her. You'll help her to support her husband well, to come alongside him and be his helpmate through this journey, Lord. And I just thank you that she loves you so much. May that love just, will you bless her, bless her husband, and bless their time here. Lord, thank you for the joy, the privilege of uh, knowing Abiodun and Kenny these years. And uh, Lord, to see the work of your spirit in them, your grace at work through them. Thank you now for adding them to our elder council. Lord, we pray that you would fill Abiodun with your Holy Spirit again and again. Lord, I pray that you would give him a great love for you, increase his love for you, increase his passion for the Word of God, increase his love for all of us here at LifePoint. Break his heart, break all of our hearts, Lord, for the needs of our city, the communities that are around us who desperately need to know Jesus. Lord, work powerfully through Abudin, we pray. Thank you for Kenny, the good partner that you've given to him. Thank you for her gifts and her ministry among us. And Lord, may you work powerfully through her as well. Thank you for her ministry of discipleship to women. And uh, Lord, we, we look forward to all that you will do. Lord, help us uh, together to build a healthy, effective church here at LifePoint. Lord, we know that you are the builder of the church. You're the founder. You are its builder. You're its perfecter. And so we want to participate in, with you, cooperate with you in what your Holy Spirit is about here. So I thank you for adding to our elder board, for adding to our church, and uh, for all that lies ahead. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.